So get ready for the church picnic next week. So uh, I want to see some, uh, some of you guys on the water slide next week. So that's going to be fun. No injuries, Mackenzie, like a few years ago or last year. Um, so let's make sure we're not doing that. And we will uh, enjoy time together. Also, right afterward today, we're having a family meeting. So um, make sure you're aware of that. And I think our Hope Kids workers are aware of that. Stephanie, can you make sure they know that there's a family meeting? Yeah, thank you. We can do that now. All right. I have never been to the reading of a will, but I'm assuming it's not the most engaging event in the world. Imagine not knowing the people or the person who died or the property or the backstory, and you're just hearing line upon line upon line of a will being read to my grandson, James. I leave my father's watch and my coin collection and my dentures. <laughs> It'd be rather boring, right? But that same boring event for me, would be extremely interesting for you if you actually knew you were named in the will. You'd be very attentive. You wouldn't really care how long it went on because you may realize there could be some life-changing potentials in what you are going to hear, what is being read. Finances could be secure. Kids' college funds are full. Home is paid off. No more debt. Missionaries are supported. Richardson's fully paid for pastor's college. Yes, right? Write the check. They're ready. They'll put a little picture of your face on Nick's diploma. He promised me that. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? Would you do that? I just made that. He said, no, never mind. Don't get, I'm just kidding. But isn't it interesting, the same event, the same reading of words can be incredibly boring to some, but incredibly important and engaging to others. Now, many have read of the land distribution in Joshua 13 to 21, and have felt the need for more coffee. Eyes glazing over, and they're like, why did the Holy Spirit put this in the Bible? Why is this here? But what we may not realize is how extremely important this is to the original hearers, to the listeners of this will being read. This was God's people finding out where they were to live in the promised land. And this was God showing that he is truly faithful to keep his promise about the promised land. This is about God's faithfulness. So we're going to be covering nine chapters today about the land distribution of God's people. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to read all nine chapters, and I would butcher most of the names anyway. But we're going to look at the overall distribution of the land and dive into specific sections intermingled in the distribution of the land because they are worth highlighting. So if you're at Joshua chapter 13, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to skip down to the middle of verse 6. This is God's Word. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord Yahweh said to him, you are old. I love that. Thanks, God. And advanced in years. And there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains. All the regions of the Philistines 
and all those of the Geshurites. And then that's spelled out. Go to the middle part of, chapter, of verse 6. I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land of Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. Talking to Joshua. Now therefore divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half of the tribe of Manasseh. So the verses set the scene. Joshua is supposed to divide the land, allot out the inheritance to the people. However, what we quickly find, point number one, is this. It is a land not fully conquered. It's a land not fully conquered. Throughout chapters 13 to 21, which we'll cover today, we will find this land distribution to the 12 tribes of Israel, nine and a half tribes, on the west side of the Jordan, two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan. Uh, chapter 13 actually explains the boundaries of the two and a half tribes. But there's a major point in these nine chapters of Joshua 13 to 21, and I've mentioned this before in our study of Joshua, what we find with great clarity in this chunk of Joshua is that there's a tension in this book. There's an underlying tension You have this great leader, Joshua, who has led really well. Much of the land has been conquered, and God's done amazing things like parting the Jordan River, crushing Jericho as they walk around and blow horns, hailstones coming from the sky, battling the Amorites. The Lord clearly fighting for his people. However, verse 2 there remains very much land to possess. I mean, verse 1, end of verse 1. There remains very much land to possess. If you look at verse 13 of chapter 13, yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Gershurites or uh, Machathites, for Geshur and Machath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. That is a problem. This is not good. Israel was to drive out all the peoples. There's so many good moments for Israel throughout the book of Joshua, but we still find this underlying apathy and compromise. They move forward, but not fully taking the land. They obey for a while, but they don't really finish what they started. They get tired, they seem to stop, and they're kind of okay with it. John Calvin calls them sluggish and not obedient. We looked at a quote several months ago by a guy named David Jackman, who as he looked at the book of Joshua, he recounted this in not just the Israelites' lives, but all of our lives. He says this, but all I need to do for my heart to harden after God has spoken his word is nothing. That's exactly what Israel does. In many moments, that's exactly what we do sometimes. God speaks, God's ready to move, He's provided. We don't move. The people grow comfortable, and they grow comfortable with compromise. We will find as we head to the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua's concerned. He's concerned about the hearts of the people. He will even say, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the rest of the people of Israel are like, yes, us too. And Joshua's like, ah, I don't know about that. 
there's still compromise. And friends, as we pull back and think about our own lives, we've got to ask, are there areas of compromise in our lives? Are we super excited about going on God's mission or doing whatever God calls us to do, and we, we go and we get started, and then we kind of stop or settle in or are apathetic? We used to have a zeal for the Lord. We used to be all in and go after the Lord, but then, you know, house and kids and jobs and we've got to figure things out. Yeah, kind of settle in. Have we grown complacent? Have we grown weary in doing good? All I need to do for my heart to harden after God has spoken, His Word is nothing. May the Lord encourage us and strengthen us to repent if, and I would say, where we have compromised. Friends, John Shea said this last week, we're a mess, right? So it's less of an if we've compromised, and it's more of a where we've compromised that the Lord wants to work in. I've personally had to been repenting a lot to friends lately. I realize I've had some unhealthy ways of avoiding conflict, like, "Eh, don't really want to deal with that. And in the name of overlooking things in love, I grew bitter, resentful, and distanced myself. And friends, that's not healthy or holy. And you know what else that is? It's compromise. And I'm like, oh my gosh. It doesn't honor God to do that. And friends, some of us are in relationships right now, and there's compromise because we're not actually trying to mend things that God calls us to mend. As John said last week, it's messy. Welcome to the family. If you haven't been sinned against yet, uh, sorry, but we have Jesus who died for our sin and knits us together and prays for us to have unity. And we believe that in the Spirit, God gives unity and grace so we can conquer the land. We can fully finish what God has set forward and calling us to be a unified body for his glory. But as we get to our, back into our text, we find that not all of Israel is comfortable with compromise. Oh, let us not be comfortable with compromise. Point number two is we have another old man, an old man fully submitted. Skip over to Joshua chapter 14, verse 6. Joshua chapter 14, verse 6. It says, then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephna, the Kenizzite, said to him, you know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was 40 years old, so this is Caleb talking to Joshua, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I was wholly follow, I, sorry, yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore in that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive just as he said. 
these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke his word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am this day 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. So now give me the hill country which the Lord spoke on that day For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Man, Caleb, this is a faithful man, and faithful for the long haul, faithful for years. And he's such a contrast from the rest of the Israelites. They're struggling with like, continuing going. They, they started, but then they start quitting. They struggle, and they grow comfortable with compromise, but not Caleb. This is a guy of vigor and tenacity. He's 85 years old at this point, and he says, I'm as strong now as I was back then. I love Caleb recounting his story. He and Joshua are two of the spies who went up to the promised land while they were in the wilderness under Moses' orders. At that time, the people of Israel had been out of Egypt for about a year. So just think, they've gone through the Red Sea, and they've just been out for a little while. They'd experienced the crossing of the Red Sea. They saw their enemies, the Egyptians, get crushed by the water. They saw a pillar of fire at night, the pillar of cloud during the day that both warmed them at night and, and kept them cool during the day in the desert. Had daily manna was provided, water coming from a rock. What they saw, what Caleb saw, what Joshua saw, but what Caleb is recounting is God's faithfulness. That's what Nancy was just describing to us, God's faithfulness. It didn't say things were easy, things were really hard, but God's faithfulness. It was the faithfulness of Yahweh that Joshua and Caleb believed as they reported back to Moses and Israel what they found in the promised land after they had spied it out. And they basically say, let's go. The Lord, Yahweh, is giving us this land. Yet the 10 other spies, there's 12 total, two, Joshua and Caleb, are like, let's go. The other 10 are like, no. There are giants in the land, and we look like grasshoppers. They're going to crush us. Caleb explains, I love this passage, Numbers 14.9. Here's what Caleb says to the people of Israel after they're starting to deny things and don't want to go and follow Caleb and Joshua. He says, Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. You've got to love the courage of Caleb. Oh, Lord, let us be men and women of courage, men and women who have a bold zeal for the Lord that do not compromise, that are strong and courageous in whatever the Lord's asking us to do, even if it seems crazy. I was with a guy who's in ministry, kind of a national leader recently, and he did just that. He was aware of a high-profile church that was crumbling, imploding in on itself. And instead of stepping back, which would have been easy to do and ignore it because that had been easy to do because he had no necessary, like anything in him to go toward that church, he ran toward it. He ran toward the fire, becoming the lead pastor of that church of some really, really, really hurting people. 
And guess what? Hurt people hurt people. I've heard that before. And he really got hurt. He got sinned against in the midst of that. It was messy. So I was with him recently, and I just commended him. I, I said, man, you, you ran toward the fire. Not many people do that. I said, man, that honors God. And that's the heart of the Father for those people. Thank you. And honestly, it, as I was with him and talking to him and was, was getting ready to say that to him, I hesitated. Because I was like, I kind of put him on the ladder. I shouldn't do that. But I put him up here and I was like, um, yeah, like I'm, everybody said this to him. Why would I just add to the voice and just kind of say that to him? And, and after I said that, he just kind of stopped and said, thank you for saying that. I haven't had many people say that. And I was like, seriously? You haven't had many people say that? And it just, two things that I just want to point out here. Let us be like that guy that honors Christ as strong and courageous, and let us also be people who commend people who are strong and courageous. We must do it, and we must be these people who encourage and have a culture of encouragement, not a culture of criticism, but a culture of encouragement. And commend people. Let us be those who run toward the fire, run toward the need, run toward the sacrifice, run toward the way of Jesus. Why? Because God is faithful. And then let us commend our brothers and sisters when we see it. Commend Nancy. Well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Right? Praise God for that. I would not want to go through that, what you described, Nancy. And I don't think you would want anybody else to go through that. But well done of God's faithfulness. Let us commend those who run toward need, run toward sacrifice, run toward the way of Jesus. Because God is faithful. Now back in Numbers 14, after Caleb speaks and tells the people to be courageous go to the promised land, the other spies, those 10 spies and the people of Israel, they completely forget God's faithfulness. They turn against Yahweh. They turn against Moses. They turn against Aaron. They turn against Joshua. They turn against Caleb. They pick up stones to kill them. That's what happens. And God's like, hold up. Glory shines down. They stop. Now fast forward 45 years, and here's Caleb, old man Caleb, coming to old man Joshua, who God says, you're old, which is kind of funny to me. And Caleb has a vigor and courage and humility and tenacity and grace. Caleb endured in the desert. Caleb walked through the Jordan. Caleb was circumcised. Caleb took Passover. Caleb marched around Jericho. He saw comrades die at Ai, then help conquer Ai later. Caleb saw the deception of the Gibeonites and then the conquest of the Amorites. Caleb fought and fought and fought and fought hard for years. And now he comes to Joshua and says, it's been 45 years since that promise. Can I... Can I have the land that was promised to me? And Joshua says, yes. But what you find out as you keep reading is it's like an occupied land. Caleb's kind of getting ready for one more battle in him. And you may not pick this up in the text, but he says, yeah, the Anakim have strong fortified cities are there. What you don't 
realize is, do you know who the Anakim are? They're the giants. They're the ones that people saw and said, they're going to crush us. We're grasshoppers. 85-year-old Caleb, let's go. (laughs) But notice what he says. He says that the Lord, it may be that the Lord will be with me. And I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. It may be the Lord who's been fighting all these battles anyway. I'm 85. Yeah, I feel strong. I don't know if he's telling the truth there. I'm just like, you're 85 and you feel like you're strong as you were when you're 40. Eh, I got some skepticism there. But the Lord knows how ages work and stuff like that. But he knows this is the Lord's battle. The Lord has been fighting for his people the whole time. So one last battle, bold request, bold trust of Caleb. And friends, this calls us to a bold request of God, bold trust of God for he who promises faithful that we go not in our strength, but in the strength of the Lord. And now for, for God's church now in this age, what the Bible calls the last days that had the Spirit poured out on them, who had the Spirit indwelled in them. Caleb didn't, and he's strong and courageous. Like Joshua didn't, and he's strong and courageous. And now we have the Spirit of the living God in us to sit around and be apathetic or compromise. No. We can have tenacity and vigor and humility and God's grace upon our lives to do whatever he calls us to do, whenever he calls us to do it. And friends, one of of my biggest prayers for myself and for our church is that we would be a people who finish well. I don't care about how we started. I'm glad we started well. But there's a lot of ministries and churches and Christians and husbands and moms and that that start well. But are we going to finish well? We don't want to last for 15 or 20 or 30 years only to compromise in the end. We want to finish well. We want to pass the baton of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the next generation. We want to have full, be people full of faith and vigor into our 80s if the Lord allows. We want to flee sin and run to Christ We want to have bold, zealous obedience to do whatever God calls us to do, which means walking towards spiritual health now, right? Which means caring for our soul so we can last for the long haul, which means taking care of relationships and compromise and where there needs to be work done here so that we can last. I was texting with a friend in our church, a lady this week. And she said, I just look forward to that day. We're like all sitting around in our 60s, just talking. Some of you guys are in your 60s, so just take it as it is. Like I'm in my mid-40s, so like 15 years from now, just sitting around and talking and recounting God's grace, just recounting God's work, being like, look at what God did. Friends, but let us also not just look at what God did, but what's God going to do now? Because when you're 60s or 70s or 80s, you still have game. Why? Because you're still here. 
As we end chapter 14, the text continues the reading of the will. And the third point is this. And this is a lot of chapters in one point, so just don't, there's only three points. This is the last one. So if you're like, Mike, we're going to 21 and we're only in chapter 14, you're scaring me. It's okay. This is going to get really fast. Um, there's allotments, there's refuge, and there's rest. Chapters 15, 16, and 17 give the details of the inheritance of Judah and the half-tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. And it's, man, there's some really encouraging parts. This passage, I don't have time to read it all, but I encourage you to read it another time. And if you're included in this will, this is highly important stuff. However, we still have twinges of discouraging reports. At the end of chapter 15, it says, all the Jebusites had not been driven out of Judah. At the end of chapter 16, it says, all the Canaanites had not been driven out of Ephraim. What do we find again? Comfortable with compromise. And then you get to chapter 18. If you skip to there, Joshua is with seven tribes at this point who are still kind of looking at the land. They're at Shiloh. Shiloh was the place where the altar was set up, where they went after the Amorites. This is where, the, where they were worshiping the Lord there in Shiloh. It's kind of the place of the tabernacle. It's the place of worship of God's people at that time. What we would often think about Jerusalem, at this point, it's Shiloh. And some scholars think that these chapters of Joshua 13 to 21 are a chiastic structure. Now, chiastic structure, if you were here for our psalm series, is like there's parallel things that go together that get to one main point. And they think that this is the main point, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 18 of Joshua. And what do we find in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 18 of Joshua? We find this. The tribes are not eager to obey God and enter the land. Look at Joshua 18, verses 2 and 3. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land, which the Lord, the God of your fathers, what? has given you. How long will you put off what God has given you? Joshua doesn't seem happy, obviously. And there are seven tribes of Israel that don't seem motivated. They end up sending three different guys into the territory to kind of give descriptions of the land. And they, Joshua sets them aside in kind of seven different portions, one for Benjamin, one for Simeon, one for Zebulun, one for Issachar, Asher, Nephtali, and Dan. That's what we find in the rest of chapter 18 and 19. But even in the distribution of the inheritance of these seven tribes, we, we find some really odd compromise. For instance, the tribe of Dan in Joshua 19, verse 47, 1947, seems to lose their inheritance and then gain it back. And if you skipped over, if we had time to go over to Judges chapter 18, they lose it again. And they go to a priest named Micah, not the Micah you often think about the Bible, but Micah, this false priest. He makes basically a, a statue for them to worship, or an ephod, I think, to worship, something to worship. And they start worshiping it. And they're like, this is what we should do. And they compromise. And what you end up finding, if you just fast forward all the way to Revelation chapter 7, when all the tribes are around worshiping God, 
it names these different tribes. There's a tribe that's absent. Did you know that? It's Dan. And most commentators say what happened in Judges 18 and what happened in Joshua 19, that's actually why that there's no Dan there in Revelation chapter 7. Here's the point, friends. All who seem to be God's people are not God's people. You can go to church. You can pray prayers. You can get baptized. You can use the lingo. You can know the terms. You can read the Christian books. If you have not turned from your sins and trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, as risen from the dead, as king of your life, you are not saved. And you can play the games. Dan played the games really well. And yet, in the end, when everybody's worshiping around the throne, gone. Not in attendance. Friends, we want you in attendance. We want you in the new heavens and new earth worshiping God. Would you turn from your sins and trust Jesus as your Savior? Back into Joshua, 19 ends with an allotment actually to old man Joshua. He actually gets some land now, so that's encouraging. And as Joshua chapter 19 ends and the land distribution ends, there are three things left to do. One, make cities for, of refuge. Two, provide for the priests. And three, send that, those two and a half tribes of the 12 tribes that are on the east side of the Jordan back home. And we'll cover that next week, or no, two weeks from now. We're going to look at that uh, in more detail, because you would think sending two and a half tribes back home would be a pretty easy process. It's not. It gets quite complicated. But let's look at the cities of refuge and the provision for the priests. The cities of refuge in Joshua 20, verses 1 through 6. I wish I could read this, but I don't think we have time. These cities of refuge are first explained in Deuter Deuteronomy chapter 4 and then further in Deuteronomy chapter 19, how these cities should be set up once the promised land is entered. So what we have again is Joshua is the leader of the word. He leads by word. And so he knows Deuteronomy 18, Deuteronomy 4, this is what you do when you enter the promised land. And so what does Joshua do? He does it. He does the things that God's word said in the Torah as he enters the promised land. He's a man of the word. So these cities of refuge are set up to help guard and protect God's people. Get this, guard and protect God's people from God's people. It's not just outside opposition that can hurt God's people. It's internal opposition. That's what we start seeing as Joshua transitions. It's less about the outsiders. It's more about inward conflict. And if someone gets killed unintentionally, there's a system of justice that God desires here. He's a God who provides justice and equity. And as I was reading this at first, I was like, man, how many people are dying all the time that you have to like have these cities of refuge? But then if you think about history and how many times is there a family conflict because one person gets killed or one sin happens and then it escalates and sometimes through generations. And so God wants to deal with that here. For God's people, if killing is premeditated and purposeful, it's called murder. It breaks the sixth commandment. Eye for an eye is the verdict. 
If the killing is accident, called manslaughter, the cities of refuge had elders. A person could flee to the cities of refuge. The elders there at the gate, these elder statesmen, would assess what's going on, and then the congregation would help at these cities of refuge to hear the case. It's an interesting justice system that they had at the time. And what's also interesting as you read verses 1 through 6 of chapter 20 is when do the people who have actually done the manslaughter and are staying safe in the city of refuge, when can they leave? There's only one point when they can leave. It's when the high priest dies. It's interesting. The high priest that year dies, and they are now allowed to go back home. Some wonder if there's some atoning work in the death of the high priest that sets the captives free. Does that sound familiar? The Old Testament constantly points us in some unusual ways to a clarity of what we find in reality with Christ, the great high priest who died for our sin to set us free. Then chapter 21 explains the provision for the priests called the Levites. That's the tribe. And let's remember that the Levites do not get included in the distribution of land. They're not to live separate from, from the rest of the tribes. They're to live in the midst of the tribes. They're given pasture land for their livestock, some for their food, some for the sacrificial system. In these 48 cities that they're given, we see in chapter 21, for the Levites, they're scattered throughout the people of Israel, and we've got to ask why. Deuteronomy 33.10 says this, The Levites shall teach Jacob, that's the people of Israel, your rules, and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings in your, on your altar. So the altar's at Shiloh, but not everybody, not every priest is at Shiloh. So these Levitical priests that are not at Shiloh, what is their job? To teach and interpret God's law for God's people. If someone was unclean, needs to see the priest, they didn't just travel to Shiloh. They had a local, somewhat local Levitical priest who literally shepherded sheep, but then also started shepherding God's people locally. We start seeing this foreshadowing of pastoral ministry where there's under-shepherds who are shepherding God's people for the good of God's people. Then verses 43 through 44 give a conclusion to the will. It says, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest every, on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises of the Lord that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. God gave them rest. God kept his promises. And we see throughout the Bible, God gives his people rest, both a Sabbath rest, but an ultimate rest in Christ. And God always keeps his promises. And he who promised is faithful. So we've seen in a 30,000-foot view, the reading of the will. God was truly faithful to his people in the promised land. But this is not a reading of the will that's somehow distant and boring in the sense that this has nothing to do with me. No, we are God's people 
in Christ. And we will one day enter the full promised land of the new heavens, new earth. And he who promised is faithful. This is where we are going. And so as we are aware of God's faithfulness, we've got to ask two things that we see in this text. God is truly faithful so we can live without compromise. God is truly faithful so we can live with bold and zealous obedience. Friends, those are two easy applications you just get from this text of these nine chapters. So friends, how are we doing here? And Christopher, if you'll come on up. Because of God's faithfulness to you in Christ, are you living a life without compromise? If there are areas of delayed obedience, that's called disobedience. If there are areas of apathy, friends, I encourage you, don't do what that one quote by David Jackman said. Don't just do nothing. Like, tell your community group leader or your D group leader or your spouse or your kids or someone you know, like, hey, I'm struggling here. I need help because I'm, I'm sensing, I'm seeing, I'm starting to kind of see some compromise. Friends, let's run toward the Lord who is the one who forgives sin. And God's truly faithful so we can live with bold, zealous obedience. Maybe there's, there's an area that you're like, I know that's an area God's calling me to. It's a relationship God's calling me to. It's a plan God's calling me to. It's steps God's calling me to. It's, it's generosity God's calling me to. It's hospitality God's calling me to. It's whatever it is. And God's saying, all right, this is where we're going. It may be really small. It may be ginormous. We want to be faithful. We want to be faithful plotters with eager expectation and honor our faithful God. And here's the thing. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit to enliven us and strengthen us and help us because we know we're a mess. We know we're, we have the ability to walk out of here and do nothing with whatever God calls us to do. Many of us have done that a lot, more than we'd like to say. So let's go forward in obedience Let's end today singing and praying, setting our hearts on the Lord who is faithful. Let's stand together and let's sing. And as we sing, I just encourage you, let this song resonate in your hearts. If you just don't want to sing and want to pray instead, feel free to do that. And I'll come up and conclude us in a minute.